You know, the older I get, and I know some of you don't think I'm that old, I'm getting up there. The older I get, the more I realize how consistently human beings are prone to extremes. It's the major reason why we have such polarization in our culture today. If you love one thing, it must mean you hate the other thing. If you're for these people, well, you're obviously against these people. If you're pro this, you must be 100% against that, which more often than not just isn't the case for most people. That is, isn't actually how we think or how we feel, but we get pulled into this narrative, this, this attitude, this worldview, that says it has to be one or the other. It has to be one or the other. To really stand for something, you have to pick a side, which often tends to feel kind of extreme. And this then often feeds into how we understand our theology as well. But the reality is that most of the time in the Christian life, in our faith, in our understanding of God, in as much as we can understand Him, there's almost always a sort of both-and. A both-and, which at times can feel like a contradiction when we read Scripture and we see it saying something here, but then it says something about God here, and it's like, are those two opposites? Well, no, it's... it's it's a both and. It can feel like a contradiction, but for us, it's actually an embrace of, of humility, of our limited perspective as human beings, of nuance, of complexity, of mystery. It's like the old parable from India of the blind men and the elephant. Have you heard this before? Maybe you've seen this image. There's a group, the parable goes that there's a group of blind men who have never come across an elephant before, and they learn and imagine what it's like simply by touching it. Each man, though, feels a different part of the elephant's body, such as the side or, or the trunk or the, the tail or the leg. And they then describe the elephant to one another based on their own particular experience. Well, you know, the guy that's grabbing the trunk. Oh, well, this. Actually, I don't know what he would say. But the guy grabbing the leg. Oh, it feels like a tree trunk. Um, the guy grabbing the, the tail. Oh, they actually say it's a rope. They all describe the elephant based on their own particular experience, and the descriptions are, of course, very different. The moral of the parable, though, is that we have this tendency to think that we're in the right based on our own limited subjective experience. We don't, we don't want to admit, we often don't want to admit that we simply can't see or understand the whole picture. No one in this image is standing anywhere where they can see the whole elephant or be able to describe the whole elephant. No one is in any position to see the whole picture. Except God, of course. He certainly does see the whole picture. And so we seek to understand things from his perspective. And we're going to go to Jeremiah to help us to do that. So this morning we are looking at Jeremiah 18, Verses 1 to 12. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn there. Chapter 18 in the book of Jeremiah. Starting at verse 1. And the words will also be up on the screen. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and then if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and to those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so similar to last week, God uses another symbolic action here with Jeremiah. Last week it was the waistband, if you'll remember. He uses another symbolic action here with Jeremiah to get a point across where his relationship is at with Israel. Kind of like a a DTR, you know, like a define the relationship. Where are we at right now? He sends Jeremiah shopping again, but not to buy anything this time. He sends him to the potter's house simply to watch and observe and wait for God to give him a message through what he will see. Now, the potter would have been a fairly well-known guy in any village in the ancient Near East, right? Everybody needed pottery. It was as necessary to your life as food, right? You needed bowls, plates, cups, all that jazz. And everyone so, everyone knew where the potter lived. So when God says, go to the potter, Jeremiah knows exactly where he's going. He heads over to Mr. Potter's house, and he observes the man at work. He watches as the potter takes a a lump of clay, sets it on top of his table, which which wouldn't have looked like a modern-day potter's table. It would have been more um, something along... This is kind of what scholars think it would have looked like. It was two large stones on top of each other. And how the potter would do it is he would spin the bottom wheel so that the top one would also revolve, and then you'd get a, a spinning effect so that you could start molding and shaping the clay. Um, so Jeremiah watches him do this, and, and as he takes the clay into his hands, he starts molding a pot, you know, putting a little bit of pressure here, a little bit of pressure there, hollowing out the inside of it and moving it around. I don't know if you've ever watched a a potter at work. It's a a marvelous thing. But as the wheel is is spinning and spinning and the clay is, is shifting and shaping, it's starting to show some disfiguration. It's not being shaped the way that the potter wants it to be shaped. So what does the potter do? get angry, throw the clay at the cat, and just start over again? No. He does what any potter would do. And if you've ever seen this, it's pretty neat. The the wheel is revolving. The, The wet clay is being spun around and around. And as the table revolves, the potter takes the misshapen pot between his hands, his or her hands. The clay, right, is held in the protective hands of the potter so that it doesn't fly every which way. And the potter slowly starts smushing it back down pressing on it so that it loses its shape and goes back to a clump, and then he gradually starts to reshape it, 
and rebuild it back as seems best to him as how seems best, as how it would seem best to him. Jeremiah watches the potter form the clay into a new pot, a different looking pot. Like he says in verse 4, as it seemed best to him. More literally, as it seemed best in his eyes. What seemed good in the eyes of the potter to do. And God asked Jeremiah this simple question. Can I not do the same with Israel as this potter does with his pot? Can I not do the same with Israel? It's a question, and perhaps you thought about this when you imagined the imagery of a potter, it's a question of authority. Do you, Israel, believe that I can do this to you? Do you understand that you are so under my authority that I can take the entirety of your being, the whole nation, its land, its temple, its animals, its people, everything, all of you, I can take it and remold it so that you would actually be used for my purposes? Do you not think I can do this? Verse 6, can I not do this with you, Israel, as this potter does, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel." You know, we, we so often speak as, as God's hands, as hands of um, sort of nice comfort, of protection, of guidance. May, may God's hand guide you. May God's hand protect you. May you feel upheld by God's hands. May he hold you in the palm of his hand, which is all good and true. But it's not the whole truth. The both and here is that we also need to understand that he is also, with his hands, able to smush us a little, put pressure on us, if it means that we will depend on him and trust him more. What was so difficult with Israel is that God had asked them over and over and over, if you read through Jeremiah, you know this, Over and over, relentlessly, for centuries, he had pleaded with them to trust him, to depend on him, to follow his ways and be his people for his honor, for the blessing of the other nations. But like a lump of clay, God wasn't able to do anything with them. He wasn't able to use them, and not because he didn't want to, but because the clay wasn't allowing itself to be shaped. The word here for marred, that the, you know, the clay, the pot was marred, it's the same Hebrew word that was used for the spoiled waistband that we talked about last week. Israel simply wasn't able to be used. Eugene Peterson once wrote this in a commentary on this passage, the clay can frustrate the potter's intention and cause him to change it. As the quality of the clay determines what the potter can do with it, so the quality of a people determines what God can do with them. Look at what the Lord says in verse 7 through 8. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. If you know the book of Jonah, this is exactly what happened in the story of Jonah. God sends him, the prophet Jonah, to a city called Nineveh to tell them to repent, to prophesy repentance. And the whole city repents. 
The whole city responds, and God didn't inflict on them the disaster that he had planned. See, both divine agency, divine authority, and human choice are at work here. Even after years of evil, right, obnoxious evil, violent evil, new inventions of evil, even if the people repented, the potter would keep the wheel turning. He'd keep maneuvering. He'd keep shaping. He'd keep working at it with hopes that the pot would be reformed into something beautiful. It's a mystery that's really hard for us to wrap our brains around because You know, in some parts of Scripture, we see a focus on sheer divine authority, where God's acting and everything is based on God's action. And then in other parts, we see what seems to be a focus on human agency and human choice, as if actually our ability to respond to what God is doing really matters. But here in Jeremiah, what we see is a both-and. It's a both-and. And how well we can hold these things together will depend on how steeped we are, frankly, in our scriptures. Nations in Jeremiah, nations are never set up in God's kingdom with a specific destiny that must be achieved no matter how well or not the people follow him. If that was the case, then Israel wouldn't have failed and been sent into exile. If, if God builds something up and it doesn't achieve the purpose for which he built it, he is well in his rights to then reconsider his plan for that thing. And if the, prophet, if the prophets teach us anything, if the prophets teach us anything, it's that even with this authority, this God has seemingly limitless patience for his people even when they aren't doing what he created them to do. And he will relentlessly pursue them to the absolute end. Even here in this passage, already after 18 chapters of reiterating the same message, God says again in verse 11, look, in other words, pay attention to what I'm saying to you. I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways. Turn from your evil ways, each one of you. Reform your ways and your actions. One scholar put it this way, it's not that God is changeable, but that God will consistently respond to our changeability. He's got a plan. He's not changing his mind that he has a plan, but he will respond if we change. Another scholar, Walter Brueggemann, used this term, responsive sovereignty. God's sovereign plans, although he's in ultimate control, still demand a response from us. It's a both and. Because as we've talked about, at the heart of God's mission, a key to a successful mission on the foundation of sheer grace is the ability of God's people to be shapeable, to be malleable, to be teachable, We have to be flexible enough so that we can respond to his prodding and his pushing and his shaping and sometimes his squishing so that we will respond to him. We need to be willing to be molded by God. Otherwise, there's no partnership, right? It's like a clay and a wheel trying to make a pot all on its own. That's not going to happen. 
It needs a potter. A painting can't paint itself. The paint and the brushes can't work on their own. They need a skilled and a careful hand to guide them. This doesn't mean that humans are just sticks of wood or lumps of clay without any will of their own. That's not the point. The point here is is the different levels of, of authority and agency, the proper placement of that authority. Too much, too much, I know I'm getting really theological today, but stay with me, okay? Too much, because this, this, honestly, the way we think about God's sovereignty and control affects everything, okay? Too much emphasis on one will nullify the other. Too much emphasis on the power and control of the potter will nullify our sense of purpose and partnership with him and our witness. Too much emphasis on us nullifies his authority and his control over all matters to do with, human, with humanity. And in a world that seems to get more, more and more chaotic by the day, to see God as a divine potter can bring us great comfort. Not at the expense of of us praying and advocating and acting, but as a comforting assurance when our efforts feel exhausted and our emotions feel dry that he is still at work. Israel simply did not seek to abide in the power and the authority of their God. They didn't trust that he was molding them and shaping them for good. They didn't trust that his molding and shaping were what they needed. They wanted to mold and shape themselves. Like we talked about in a previous week, they wanted to be their own image rather than his. They didn't trust, and that impacted their ability to be his witnesses, to be useful for his purposes. The threats of God for disaster meant nothing to them because for so long they existed in this worldview that God doesn't actually care that much to be so intimately involved in every detail of their lives. That he was distant and otherly. He wasn't watching and seeing everything that they were doing. He's not bothered by all those little ways of living. But as we've said, the loss of one is inevitably the loss of the other. If we lose God in the everyday lives of of people, in all the things that we do, we lose his sovereignty. If we lose God in the majesty and the power and, and the authority that he has, sometimes we lose him then in the little things because we make him distant and otherly. Only a dependent holding together of these things equates to a deep trust in all areas of life. When we look at what's happening in the minute details of our lives and in the grandiose things that are happening in this world, we have to hold these things together that God cares about both and that we can trust him in both. And it takes an imagination that really can hold together mystery, right? The mystery of a God who has complete control, a potter that can do whatever he wishes without needing to seek the permission or the opinions or the criticisms of the clay, whose, whose end the potter has ultimately decided, but who also seeks a response from the clay. He seeks a response, a potter who will reshape or, or remold, change his plans even, based on the condition of the clay and the relationship that he has with it. 
As one scholar put it, the prime message from the divine potter is to say, work with me. Like a potter and clay, like, clay, work with me here. Work with me. Respond to what I do. Respond to what I say. Change your ways and I'll change my ways. I'll change my plans. But as we find out in verse 12, Israel will continue with their own plans. And there's that wordplay intentionally. God talks about his plan, and Israel says, no, I will go with my plan. Following the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Judah had a choice in the matter, but they were too stubborn, and they ended up losing that choice. When God's people resist his molding and shaping, they eventually lose the right to choose. Which is ironic because this kind of molding and shaping that we're talking about is where life actually began in the first place. See, the the word here used for the potter comes from the same Hebrew root that was used to form. It means to form, to mold, to, to shape into a form. And that root is the same that was used in Genesis 2 to describe the forming and shaping of human beings. It's the same word. See, in Hebrew, there's a lot more connectivity with words because there were less words than we have. So it's the same word, the same root word for forming and shaping, forming and shaping the human out of the dirt, out of the soil. Some translations say, out of the clay. In other words, the potter has been at work from the very beginning molding and shaping his creation for his purposes, giving them life, giving them the option of life, giving them the choice to join him in his creative work. God formed humans from the substance of the earth, and the simple truth presented here is that he knows when the clay needs to be reshaped, reformed. Jeremiah was told at the beginning of his prophetic ministry that God formed and shaped him in the womb, which no doubt would have been the defining assurance that he held with him throughout his prophetic ministry. He wasn't just skin and bones. He was formed. He was formed by someone. He was formed by the loving, skillful hands of a potter who had given him a purpose, who had shaped him and molded him for a purpose. But even Jeremiah had to be poked at and prodded and reshaped. He had to endure harassment, death threats, beatings, imprisonment, getting thrown into an empty well, sinking into the mud, left for dead. He had to experience a pressing into the clay that, frankly, almost did him in. But his partnership with the potter stayed intact. He continued to respond. He never failed to react and to respond to what God was doing. Israel lost this capacity to respond to what God was doing. And as a result, needed to be pressed down and reshaped, which of course is what happened in the exile. They had resisted for too long the pressing in of the potter's hands. And in the potter's eyes, as he saw best, exile, sending them away from the land, having them go through this disaster, was the only way that this cycle of stubbornness and disobedience could be broken. Something had to change. 
But that reshaping, that change, paved the way for a new beginning in God's creative endeavors. Look at what Jeremiah 31 says. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. I will build you up again. And you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. I will build you up again. Right? Again, he doesn't throw away the clay. He doesn't throw any one of us away. He reshapes, he remolds, and he builds a new purpose. And he's got a new creative endeavor here. And he says, with this broken Israel, I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to do something with you. I've so reshaped you that I'm giving you a new beginning. There's a new beginning. A new vessel. That, that language of virgin, of course, not only points to the coming of Christ, but it symbolically implies a new beginning, a new start. A fresh womb, if I can put it that way. A new creative masterpiece that will be formed in a mother's womb and will foreshadow a new work that God's Spirit is doing among His people. See, in Christ, and only in Christ, because of His life, His death, and His resurrection, we are no longer now simply being formed by the outside but we now have the potter's spirit within us, forming us, shaping us from the inside, not just externally working around us, working within us, which is why we are now new creations, new works of art, new masterpieces, And as Paul says in Romans 9, this has nothing to do with our good deeds or our good efforts. It's completely dependent on the mercies of God, on the masterful handiwork of the artist. But it does require a response, an openness to be shaped, a willingness to be taught, to be pressed in on, to be nurtured and honed and formed. See, there's a reason why God didn't use the image of a stonecutter or a blacksmith that would have felt a little too harsh and that wouldn't have accurately described what he was actually doing within us. Go to the potter's house. Go to the potter's house. The master craftsman and the molder. Go to his house. And perhaps that's exactly what we're doing this morning. Perhaps that's exactly what we do anytime we open Scripture and spend time in prayer. We are looking to be reformed, reshaped, remolded. We're not looking simply to get something out of this. We are looking to be molded, shaped, reformed, looking for God to wrap his gentle hands around us and to mold us as he sees fit. Peterson said this, God needs and presses, pushes and pulls. The creative work starts over again, patiently, skillfully. God doesn't give up. God doesn't throw away what is spoiled. But of course, what this means again for us, he says, is that we need to be willing to be thrown on the potter's wheel, 
and shaped our entire selves, not just pieces of us, our entire selves into something useful and beautiful. And when we are not useful or beautiful, to be willing to be reshaped. Painful, he says, but worth it. I remember the first time ever really entrusting myself into God's hands in a way that actually scared me in the moment. It, was, it all involved an exercise of, of picturing him holding my heart. That's it. Just literally picturing him holding my heart. And although at first it was comforting, within a second, within a split second, it changed to fear that his hand would do this. And it would squish me. And it was amazing how quickly my brain went there. Picturing him holding something precious, but then immediately wanting to take it back. Because I didn't want that to be his plan for me. I didn't want him to crush me. I was worried that he would hurt me. I didn't want that to be what he had in mind. See, it takes great trust and not just a little bit of emotional energy and discipline to let him hold that which is most precious to us and to trust that his hands will only work for good. Whether it's a child, a spouse, your own heart, a sense of self, something, something delicate perhaps, or something that is struggling, or that you hold very close. Imagine it now. Imagine it. In the palm of his hand. I mean it. Imagine this, if you can. Imagine it in the palm of his hand. Picture it, or the person, whoever it is, whatever it is, if you can, sitting right in his palm with his fingers and his thumb ever so slightly curled around it. Picture it there. Don't worry. He's not testing you. He's not questioning your faith. He's simply asking you, and perhaps he is calling you, to rest in that image of a potter holding what is most precious to you in the palm of his hand. Like when a child delicately holds a baby chick in her hands, knowing that what she's holding is incredibly fragile and needs great care. But of course, when the little chick wants to jump out, her hands have to get a little tighter to protect it from falling. Now ask yourself, do you trust him to hold you? Can you trust that he will guide and protect you with tenderness and skill? That he is masterfully shaping you with great love, with divine artistry, pressing in on you at times, 
picking and prodding, molding and shaping, because he sees the whole picture. Can you trust that the potter will only do with you what seems best in his eyes to do? Let me pray. Living God, our, our prayer perhaps is a simple one this morning. That as we recognize your authority and we sing about your majesty and we acknowledge that you are the great lion of Judah who has masterful control over all that we see and all that we do, Lord, we recognize within that you demand a response from us. You ask a response from us. You woo us to have a response to what you are doing. And this requires us, Lord, to be shapeable, to be moldable, to be teachable. So put us on the potter's wheel, both as a church, as a whole community, and individually. Put us on your wheel. Shape us. Mold us. Transform us with your spirit within us for your purposes. Because, Lord, at the end of the day, what matters most is that we are able to be used by you for your purposes and for your glory. So we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.